Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be covering the story The Flying Stars by G.K. Chesterton, published originally in 1911. Glenn and I read it in the Father Brown, The Essential Tales collection, though. Right, published by the the Modern Library. It's always a great series I recommend. That's the same series, actually, that Brandon and I used when we did our uh, At the Mountains of Madness bonus series uh, a few years ago now at this point. But yeah, let's get to the matter at hand here. I have to say that this episode is long overdue. This is something we're checking out because it is adjacent to Neil Gaiman. It's something we've encountered in Neil Gaiman before. Specifically, we are here because, hey, G.K. Chesterton, he's a character in Sandman. He's Gilbert. Uh, And we really probably should have done this uh, this episode or an episode like it several years ago because we have done two more volumes, actually, of Sandman since we last saw him, but we are only now actually getting uh, some of his work on the show. But better late than never, I suppose. And we decided to do a Father Brown story really simply because... Those are short stories, and we could cover one in a single short episode. Also, I will say I just really like these stories, though I'm not sure that The Flying Stars is the best example of a Father Brown story. That's something we can talk about later as the conversation develops. But I think before we even get into the story itself, Brent, what is your history with Chesterton? Have you read much Chesterton before? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, you, Brandon, and I covered uh, a little bit of Chesterton, and that might be the most that I recall. I'm sure at some point I've encountered other works of his, and I'm sure I've seen bits of some of the adaptations of particularly the Father Brown stories that I know the BBC is fond of doing, but uh, um, I am not a Chesterton head, if you will. Right. And we have talked before on the air, or I have talked before on the air about being at least sort of mildly a, a, Chester, a Chesterton head. I will borrow your phrase there, Brent. Um, but but not, not die hard. And it's been a while since I've really uh, done that. But yeah, as you say, you and I and Brandon, my uh, co-host on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast and Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, did a team up on a bonus Patreon episode to cover The Man Who Was Thursday, which was a ton of fun. And Brandon and I also did another Father Brown story uh, on Patreon almost six years ago at this point, uh, the very first Father Brown story called The Blue Cross. That was a story that uh, uh, we had a ton of fun doing. And we had done that one because uh, G.K. Chesterton is also supremely important to Gene Wolfe. In fact, Gene Wolfe, Neil Gaiman, very good friends. Neil Gaiman was uh, a great champion of Gene Wolfe, as I'm sure Neil Gaiman fans are aware. And I always like to imagine that they're Friendship began by talking about G.K. Chesterton, you know, just uh, over drinks at a con or something, something like that. Though, of course, it could be Kipling, as we have talked about before as well. So I encourage listeners to check out some of those other episodes that we've done on Chesterton. And this will not be the last Chesterton that we do uh, on the network, I'm sure. But let's get to this story. So Father Brown, I think we've alluded to a little bit, but have not said definitively yet, Brent. Father Brown is a detective. This is a detective story. It is not a a police procedural type of story. It's the amateur detective type of story. Uh, This detective story is from 1911. So it predates Agatha Christie by a few years, but it does post-date Sherlock Holmes. It's kind of in a sweet spot between what I would think of as being two distinct phases of the history, the development of detective fiction. Uh, Though, just to 
be clear, this will become relevant on the network uh, shortly. Arthur Conan Doyle does bring Holmes out of retirement a few years after this uh, for, I don't know, another 20 stories or so. In fact, I say that will become relevant. It actually has been relevant for us, Brent, because we have done A Case of Death and Honey, which was a Neil Gaiman, Sherlock Holmes pastiche that's actually set later than this Father Brown mystery. But all right, at any rate, the point is here, this is a bit of a cozy English mystery. It's going to be about stolen jewels rather than murder. And of course, murder is what I think we today mostly expect from mystery stories. But here it's, you know, theft, it's jewel theft. And in the style of the day, Chesterton gives us, I'd say, a bit of a strange beginning to the story. It's really a a bizarre framing device, I think. And what he does is he gives us an introduction to the story in the voice of the criminal, before he then takes that away and just tells the story in the voice of an unnamed narrator who is not in any way a character in the story, at least not as far as I can tell. And I'll say, Brent, I actually liked this trick a lot, but only on my second read. On my first reading of this story, I found this trick, this this change of, of narrator, I found it really jarring and really confusing. So I just wonder, Brent, how did this work for you? Yeah, it didn't really work for me at all, at least on the first reading either, just because I don't know who this character is. And so immediately starting from a log monologue about how great he thinks he is, it it wasn't really working for me. It caused me to dislike him based on kind of the style and what he's not Chesterton, but the flambeau who is giving the talk based on some of the things he says and how he, you know, some stereotypes he tends to try to lean into, um, But yeah, it didn't really work for me as a framing device particularly well either, other than just grabbing attention that this is supposed to be the great kind of Moriarty type figure uh, in some ways for this story. And it just, it didn't, there wasn't the charisma there for me to actually find it that intriguing. It just seemed like someone who is very proud of themselves in ways that they probably should not be. Yeah, it it is a bizarre opening. And and I think you're right to invoke Moriarty here. The character in this story is Flambeau, who is a recurring villain in these Father Brown stories. So this is actually the last time that uh, we, we get him, at least as far as I recall. But we've had him in other stories up to this point. This is, I don't know, sort of uh, still the very beginning of Father Brown mysteries, but it's the fifth or sixth story, I think. But at any rate, yeah, it would be like if your first Sherlock Holmes story that you ever read just randomly because your podcasting partner has assigned it to you for homework this week. And uh, it opens up with a monologue from Moriarty, then switches to the voice of Dr. Watson uh, to tell the rest of the story. And you're like, I don't I don't have any context for this. I don't really know who this person is. Like, I'm not moved by this in any way. And also, let's just be clear, Flambeau is, is no Moriarty. In fact, most people are not Moriarty. Moriarty is one of the great all-time nemesis. Right. And I think that's the challenge with trying to go after something that even slightly evokes that is just... In the absence of anything else in the story in particular, as it starts, I'm only coming into it with what I'm coming into it with. And so I'm comparing this monologue to many other better monologues that have come before. Um, And that doesn't do you favors. And I think that there's some wonderful uses of language that Chesterton has um, where he kind of elaborately can paint some really gorgeous pictures and not taking advantage of that strength to start things off, I think hurts the story. I think you might be playing to the crowd for someone who's excited for another Flambeau story, but uh, you're not doing anything to bring in a new reader, um, which was my perspective. 
Yeah, I think that that's probably spot on there, Brent, that this actually did feel like this was a bit of uh, a publisher. And this is early in in Chesterton's writing career. So it feels like a publisher saying, do you have any more of those Father Brown stories about Flambeau? And Chesterton saying, uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> but it's the one where he's going to retire because I don't want to write Flambeau stories anymore, <laughs> which is, of course, also a thing that Arthur Conan Doyle did with Sherlock Holmes. And then through some uh, pressure, uh, various types of pressure brought uh, brought Sherlock Holmes out of retirement. But uh, yeah, it's hard to talk about a detective story, I think, from this era, era, especially a British detective story, without wanting to go back to Holmes all the time. But he is not appearing in this story. Father Brown is. Let's get to the actual plot. I am going to try to do this in one go here, Brent, before we pause and talk about it. And then we can save some of our airtime here for talking about the other elements of the story, which I think are really more relevant for talking about Neil Gaiman. And and just to clarify, listener, he's not going to do it in one breath. I thought that's what he was going to do originally, but (laughs) then Glenn explained to me that no, he's not going to try to defy um, the capacity of his lungs that much. So, uh, So one go it'll be, but not one breath. Yeah, I mean, that could be a side of challenge we set for ourselves in future episodes, but not this one. <laughs> All right. Well, first thing I should say is that, uh, well, we do already know who the criminal is here. And as we've said, this is a recurring character in these stories, this French thief named Flambeau. Uh, well, we already know he's the criminal. Uh, he's uh, the, the master of disguise. And so what that really means is that Part of the fun of reading the story is that we, the readers, have to figure out which character is actually Flambeau in disguise in this kind of locked room mystery scenario here. And Chesterton plays with this some more by also giving us a character who is named Mr. Crook. Uh, And, you know, the point is here really is that this is all kind of a game for Chesterton. It's a word game for Chesterton. But all right, to the story now, for real. So the story is set contemporary to its writing. So, you know, it's 1911 or so, and we are in England. It's Christmas, and the jewel theft is going to occur at the home of a wealthy family. Uh, A family that's wealthy, but a family that is not a, a member of the aristocracy here. Now, naturally, there is going to be a Christmas party with a strange cast of characters, One of them is Father Brown, who is a Catholic priest and a friend of the family. And of course, also, right, he is the detective here. And we also have the family themselves. And then there is a member of the peerage, a member of the aristocracy, who is also a wealthy financier. And there is Mr. Crook as well, who is uh, a friend of the family and maybe also the love interest of the family's 20-ish daughter. He is also a journalist, and it turns out a socialist, uh, something we can take up later. And then also, finally, there is the patriarch's brother-in-law, a Canadian farmer. And uh, the Canadian farmer bit here, wow, this lets Chesterton make a ton of Canadian jokes that, I don't know, I guess that's the sort of thing that killed in London in 1911, but I just was sort of mystified by and maybe even mildly offended by on behalf of, uh, of all Canadians everywhere. But all right, the story is called The Flying Stars, and the flying stars, it turns out, are some diamonds that the 20-ish daughter has just received as a Christmas present. And we are told up front that jewel thieves are after the flying stars. And of course, that is exactly what is happening here. Now, the partiers decide to put on a Christmas pantomime 
And in this context, pantomime means uh, a type of comedic improvisational play that you put on at home. Usually there's going to be some bawdiness, also some anti-authoritarianism, and also just a general sense of comeuppance. And this was very popular as a, a kind of pastime, uh, especially at Christmas, uh, very popular in England in the 19th century. And uh, so now the plot takes a little bit of a turn, which is that there is going to be one more guest. This is a French acrobat named Florian, who is somehow a friend of the Canadian farmer. Now, he's not here yet, but when he comes, he'll bring some costumes so that they can do this pantomime. And the pantomime here, the Christmas pantomime, this is the real set piece of the story. It's when the diamonds go missing. And in the end, Father Brown realizes that the Canadian brother-in-law was not. He was, in fact, Flambeau. Father Brown catches up to him as Flambeau is making his escape. And Father Brown gives a little speech about how the consequences of the theft aren't really fiscal for this family, for anyone involved, in fact, but that Mr. Crook here is going to be suspected of the theft because he's a socialist. And even just being suspected of this theft is going to ruin him. It's also going to ruin his romance with the daughter here. Now, we already know from the bizarre opening that we talked about, we already know from that opening that this was Flambeau's last crime and that after this he reformed. And that reformation began here at this point with Father Brown's speech. Now, Flambeau, he doesn't say anything at all in response to Father Brown. He just like gently like drops the diamonds out of a tree he's climbing to get over the estate wall. And so Father Brown has them now and is able to return them and... That's the plot. Uh, Now, there is obviously a lot more to this story than plot. But before we get to any of that, I just have to know, Brent, did you enjoy, you know, the plot of this, the mystery element of this? No, (laughs) Uh, I didn't. It was fine. It was a trifle. I think I just wasn't in quite the mood for it because I found myself not particularly caring as much for some of the characters. I also then was not as interested in like you know, watch the diamonds, where might the diamonds be? Um, which I think I needed to be, I need in a three card Monty kind of sense. I think I need to be paying attention to who is interacting with the uncle, um, to figure out, you know, who would have had the opportunity, um, to have swiped the flying stars. Um, and I just, I just didn't, you know, it is a jubilant story around Christmas time. If I had read it in kind of a festive mood, um, you know, with a, a, some eggnog or something, then perhaps I would have gotten into it more. But I don't know. Did it work for you? Well, that is why I picked this one. Uh, I remembered from having read all of these stories almost 20 years ago at this point that at least one of them had taken place at Christmas. Although this is not airing anywhere near Christmas, we are recording it <laughs> only about a week before Christmas. And so that was why I had picked this one. So I did read it with Christmas music on, but what I had forgotten was that the Christmasness of this story is this pantomime play, which is not a tradition that you and I you know, grew up with. It's not one that I have even any sort of adopted nostalgia for. And I had forgotten that it's really a slapstick farce. I mean, it felt actually kind of more like Keystone Cops to me. Like that was really the soundtrack I probably should have been listening to while reading this. And it really was a, you know, keep track of the, the diamonds while there's this commotion going on. This really is like a Christmas comedy 
story that happens to have a mystery element to it, except that, like so much comedy, I don't know that the comedy itself has actually aged all that all that well. Um, had you know really the same feeling reading this that I have watching uh, you know comedy films or comedy TV shows you know from our from our youth. And the stakes, I felt like, were not really presented until later in the story that, like, if the flying stars have go missing, then it, it'll reflect poorly on Mr. Crook. Mr. Crook, despite his socialism, is someone who seems amiable enough, um, and so we should feel bad about that. But it's not until literally the last couple pages that that's brought up. Otherwise, it's well-to-do family has person visit with diamonds that uh, are called the flying stars because they're constantly stolen all the time, which also leads me to wonder, did the uncle come into these rightfully or did he buy them from someone who stole them from someone else? Um, and also they're diamonds in England. So, you know, uh, chances that they are, have been appropriated from uh, nefarious uh, actors uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, so in that lens, it's just like rich people have rich gift that rich people don't need. Don't like it's just, and perhaps it's my socialism that's kicking in there, but I just, I didn't care. And the stakes weren't there for me again until the, like, you don't want this to, you know, look poorly on Mr. Crook, but that, literally has to be fed to the audience in like the last the second to last page almost um and that there's not the stakes earlier on that like there's not it's not even quite clear to me that ruby really even cares for her uncle at all except for out of some sense of duty um she does they are all amazed by these diamonds but like that they're not like, you know, uh, if they were a family heirloom, perhaps, or something else like, you know, these had been your mother's, these had been your grandmother's. Um, I retrieved them because some nefarious person stole them from the family a generation ago. Um, and now they're rightfully in our family. Like if there was some kind of stakes in that way, and it wasn't just, these are pretty objects to have. Um, they've been stolen all the time. They get stolen all the time. Oh, look, they've been stolen again. It's just like, okay, cool. Oh, okay. And I just, it, yeah, that, that was kind of my challenge with it. Longtime listeners know that I love detective stories. It's actually really probably my favorite genre to to read. And that um, I'm a pretty big fan of, well, really almost all detective stories, but I am especially a very big fan of Agatha Christie's brand of eh, really what we would call cozy mysteries. And I think this story is an example of the sort of thing that Agatha Christie does better than just about anyone, which is the uh, wealthy guests at uh, an upper class or wealthy estate, all kind of stuck together for some reason. And there's going to be a crime there. And, you know, the police are going to be called in, or at least a detective of some sort is going to try to crack the case. And a lot of what we're there for are actually the shenanigans and hijinks of this cast of characters. Chesterton seems to have that kind of story in mind here. And of course, mm -hmm. before Agatha Christie has more or less perfected that model, but he's not nailing it, I, I don't think. And in particular, though, one of the faults of this story is, I think, just that it is a short story mm -hmm. and rather than a short novel so that we don't get time to just sit with these characters and develop that kind of investment to see what those stakes are, you know, to care about this relationship, to get more of this, you know, talk about politics. So there's actually quite a bit of it still, even in just a few pages of this story. But 
But this is the sort of thing Agatha Christie would take this story and I, I think punch it up a little bit by dragging it out, you know, saying we're here not just for like a day. It's not just an afternoon on Boxing Day, but that we're here for like the entirety of Christmas weekend or some reason people can't leave. And so we get to really know all of these characters. There's a few red herrings, not just about like who we might think Flambeau is, but even red herrings about like maybe there are other crimes and that sort of thing. And it would have been perfect. And of course, you know, those sorts of stories that Agatha Christie perfected go on to really shape mystery stories, certainly as they appear on TV for, you know, like our generation, Brent, our parents' generation as well. And so I think we're coming to this story certainly with a lot of expectations. And it's like, yeah, this story gives us, like it hits some of those notes, but it doesn't strike them fully, I don't think. So for me, this was interesting historically in terms of seeing the development of detective fiction, the development of the cozy mystery in particular. But there are significantly better examples of this type of story out there. Also better Father Brown stories I could have picked. So on that note, I guess I apologize to you, Brent, and also to our listeners, but uh, we can try to revisit Father Brown another time. But of course, we're not really here for Father Brown himself. We're really here for Fiddler's Green, which is to say we're here for Neil Gaiman's interest in Chesterton. So let's talk about Gaiman. Let's talk about his interest in Chesterton. What do you find in this story, Brent, that you see echoed in in Gaiman, if, if anything? In the family deciding they're going to do the pantomime um, activity is kind of this fun kind of spirited interaction of uh, the joy of kind of an amateurist theater production, um, but also just kind of reveling in how to make the most fun out of the world around you with what costuming you have available and kind of, you know, freely, you know, telling the story and, you know, father Brown happily sitting in the audience, even though he helped set things up. Um, and just, yeah, there's a lot there that I particularly see, um, kind of, a the, the playfulness. Um, and then in addition, just Chesterton and Gaiman have a similar love of language. So there's a lot of kind of fun back and forth. They have the whole brief discussion on politics is, um, feels like mainly an excuse for Chesterton to, to, to show off some wit and some humor, um, in, in some, you know, pretty rapid fire fashion that works pretty well. Um, and so that struck me as very much something that, that Neil Gaiman does well then later, uh, in his own writing. But, uh, was there something in particular that struck you? Well, I think all of these things struck me as well. I think on the, you know, the, the love of language front, I think there is also here just a, a real belief in the power of words, right? That we certainly talk mm. about all the time with Neil Gaiman, who you know, believes that words are this kind of, kind of magic, or at least words function as this kind of magic in so many of his stories. And that's what happens here too, right? That it's, it's Father Brown's speech, you know, has this power to reform Flambeau, or at least, you know, set him on the path to, uh, reformation to well redemption the path to redemption i guess is probably how we should we should put that and so yeah this belief in the power of words that's something that really 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 stood out to me i will say that although i think neither you nor i found this story particularly funny it's clear that it was meant to be that its contemporary audience would have but it is not a comedy story right and i think that that's something gaiman does as well gaiman is quite funny quite witty but he doesn't often, he does sometimes, but he doesn't often outright 
compose comedy, right? But nonetheless, sprinkles humor throughout his stories. And I think that there's a lot of DNA that he shares with Chesterton there. And also just thinking about the pantomime, which is really where the much of the funniness is meant to, to lie in this story. This is already Chesterton being interested in a form of entertainment that's passe at this point that's going out of fashion. That's not entirely mm-hmm. gone, but is going out of fashion. And that is all over Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. as well. Thinking uh, Violent Cases, which was the first episode you and I ever uh, tried to record, but did not actually <laughs> record our very first practice episode. But it's in Violent Cases. It's in, uh, uh, you know, he does Punch and Judy. He does Mirror Mask, right? About a, a circus family. And those are just a few examples off the top of my head, right? This is something that Gaiman is also supremely interested in. And so I was really, uh, really fascinated with that shared DNA here as well. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's kind of the, the kind of, in some ways, resuscitation of uh, art forms that are not dead, but they're, you know, they're not the norm, but they were at one point in kind of a love of those things that uh, I think, you know, for Neil, um, as well as for um, uh, GK, uh, for Gilbert, um, you know, they remember fondly from their childhood as well as from other things that they've read previously. Right. Um, so it's it's just also harkening back to things that they either experienced or things that they have read stories about other people experiencing in the past um, that sound like delightful, fun romps. And so um, let's have that happen, which yeah, I, this, I mean, uh, while the story didn't really work for me, I think I would have had a lot of fun had I been there and participating with the family. So, I mean, I think that came across. So, yeah, this almost certainly would have been funnier if we had watched this on screen than reading it on page. I mean, just absolutely. I mean, because it is it is so slapstick. Yes. There's a, another thing that I really liked about this story that I also thought was, you know, something that Gaiman shares with with Chesterton here, or, you know, learned from reading a lot of Chesterton when he was younger. And that's you know, interest in characters maybe is, is a way to put that, you know, having this, this interest in developing the characters. But there were just some particular ways that Chesterton wrote about the characters that struck me as Gaiman-esque. Like if we, you know, we had played some game where you were reading me passages of text and asking me if Gaiman wrote that or not. There were several passages here that I, I would have said, yeah, that Gaiman wrote that. And I'll, I'll share one with you here. It's on page 64 of this edition that we've got, Brent. It's uh, about halfway down. And it's, it's this. Chesterton just writes, the young lady, having scattered bread for the birds for the fourth or fifth time that day, because the dog ate it, passed unobtrusively down the lane of laurels and into a glimmering plantation of evergreens behind. And it's this parenthetical bit, for the fourth or fifth time that day, because the dog ate it, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, it's just all one sentence. That's all I read to into the microphone there was one sentence. Tells us so much about this character and also about this, this setting as well. But this is something Gaiman does all the time, too. He gives us these, these kind of funny details that are unnecessary to what's actually being told to us, right? Or at least that the sort of object of the paragraph, it's unnecessary, but it fleshes out the character in this way that's not distracting or, uh, you know, obtrusive and is actually kind of funny as well. I would have, if you had read this to me, I would have said, yeah, Neil Gaiman wrote that. I'm not sure which story it's from, but that sounds like something Neil Gaiman wrote to me. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair. Um, And I mean, what's great about that, as you said, is it, it tells you things about the character, but it also tells you things 
that aren't really directly related to the character, about the environment the character is in. Um, and it's completely unnecessary for the story. There's nothing to do with birds. There's nothing to do with, I'm not even sure the dog is mentioned again, frankly. Um, although maybe it is. Um, but if it is, it's not important. Um, so it just, it's some nice bit of kind of larger world building that provides kind of grounded realism for what we're going to get um, in the kind of slightly surreal pantomime that, that follows. Well, Brent, you had brought up as well, and we've danced around it a little bit, that there's quite a bit of political commentary in this story. And that is something that we definitely see in Neil Gaiman. Uh, we've talked about it in The Sandman for sure. We've talked about it when we've done uh, Neil Gaiman uh, writing Hellblazer as well and and other places also. And we will continue to see more and more of it. In fact, I think more of it as we actually get to more contemporary Gaiman as the, the show progresses through the years as well. But I was particularly interested in the specifics of Chesterton's political commentary here because you and I have only a few months ago covered The Man Who Was Thursday, which is about uh, investigators or secret agents, I should say, infiltrating a group of anarchists who are uh, going to launch into some domestic terrorist campaign well, around the whole world. Um, that's the setup. That's not the plot. So I'm not spoiling anything there for people who haven't uh, haven't read it. And it's very much about politics. That was, I don't know, probably about a third of the episode that we did with Brandon was talking about politics. I was interested here that Chesterton seems particularly sympathetic to socialism, uh, at least in some ways. I, I yeah, it felt like almost a sort of different political stance than we had in the man who was Thursday. I wonder how, I wonder how you felt about that. It, it struck me very much as the way that someone might uh, pat a child on the head and say, like, "Well, that's a good sentiment," but you, you know, haven't quite learned. In particular, one uh, exchange that occurs, uh, as you referred to on page sixty-seven of, of the uh, the collection that we are reading from. Uh, that Ruby is talking about trying to figure out what the word is for a socialist and says, you know what I mean? What do you call a man who wants to embrace the chimney sweep? And father Brown responds a saint. And then the Sir Leopold corrects that uh, socialist is what that means. And I think that the, the reference to a saint here from father Brown in terms of embracing the chimney sweep, we see kind of two things here. One uh, on a slapstick level, we see the comedy of a chimney sweep who is covered in soot. Only a saint would perhaps actually want to embrace them and then get the soot all over themselves. Uh, but also we see uh, Chesterton's um, concern about kind of the working class, um, the working poor um, in, in ways that, you know, many others would not particularly consider or regard them in that way. But then I think he kind of goes on to somewhat, you know, poke fun at Mr. Crook's um, kind of socialist belief because uh, Crook explains that uh, a radical does not mean a man who lives on radishes. Uh, and a conservative does not mean a man who preserves jam. Neither, I assure you, does a socialist mean a man who desires a social evening with the chimney sweep. A socialist means a man who wants all the chimneys swept and all the chimneys sweeps paid for it. Um, and the priest responds, but who won't allow you to own your own soot? Um, and so there's kind of the critique of um, what Chesterson views as the socialist principle in terms of uh, ownership. Um, so. 
Right. I had this passage marked as well. I'm glad you decided to read it into the microphone there, Brent. Because yeah, it's this use of the word saint that really jumped out to me. And then we do get the critique of socialism from the you know same character, Father Brown, who says, well, someone who wants to embrace a chimney sweep as a saint, says, really seems to think that the only problem with socialism is its stance on private property, which is that private property ought to be abolished. And this is certainly in line with Catholic uh uh, attitudes, I mean, like official church attitudes about socialism uh, in, well, you know, dating from the 19th century. There's an encyclical from Pope Leo that uh, talks about all of these things in which he says definitively, if you're a Catholic, you can't be a socialist because the teachings of Christianity are in favor of private property. Leo then also goes on to say, though, that yes, in fact, um, the chimneys do all need to be swept, but the chimney sweeps all need to be paid fairly for it, like a livable wage for their work. And goes on to say that greed is sinful and so on. And so it's interesting here to see, yeah, that uh, Chesterton, one, has Father Brown, I think, having exactly the official stance, the official Catholic stance on this. Uh, but also, I think, a much more sympathetic view towards socialism in general, meaning that he seems to be in line with the way that the socialists want people to be treated and is all in favor of economic fairness, uh, economic justice, I suppose is what we might say today, but is not for abolishing private property for you know a host of a host of reasons, only one of which he gives here. And Chesterton really is trying to stake out a, a sort of alternative, a kind of third way in his political writing of the 20s and 30s, which is really the bulk of of what I've read this is when he was uh, you know had regular newspaper columns about you know current events, political topics, social topics and and so on, where he is opposed to socialism, is opposed to communism, but is also he you know he regrets the industrial revolution he is opposed to capitalism as much as he is opposed to socialism and is trying to strike a kind of third way here and uh, and and does that's something we talked about in the man who is thursday this is maybe less important for neil gaiman though Gaiman does write about politics, but it's significantly important for Gene Wolfe, who in his early career, early writing career, wrote a lot of political science fiction, and he really adopts Chesterton's views wholesale and puts them into a well, a variety of science fiction settings, a variety of science fiction stories in a really interesting way. And so, yeah, having read this story with you, Brent, this will uh, this will start to show up on other shows in the network uh, uh, eventually. Well, to wrap things up, you know, we don't have any art here, so we can't pick uh, a favorite panel. But besides the passages that we've already read to each other, Brent, did you have uh, another passage that jumped out to you, something you want to share with listeners? I did, Glenn, and it actually just starts a little bit later on the page from where we just were, page 67. Um, and it's more so what's occurring at the top of 68, but I need to read a little bit of the setup. So uh, the boisterous Canadian, Mr. Blount, was lifting his loud voice in applause and the astonished financier his, in some considerable deprecation, when a knock sounded at the double front doors. The priest opened them and they showed again the front garden of evergreens, monkey train tree and all now gathering gloom against a gorgeous violet sunset. The scene thus framed was so colored and quaint like a black, like a back scene in a play that they forgot a moment, the insignificant figure standing in the door. So I love that passage in the description of 
the gorgeous violet sunset and kind of the framing of the door and the garden and how kind of kind of quaint it is uh, for a couple reasons. One is um, this is Chesterton, um, as he frequently does, kind of pointing at um, the beauty of the world kind of all around us. Um, uh, the garden is a nice garden, but it's not, you know, spectacularly the best garden in the world. Um, but it's just kind of the glory of the sunset um, and then from Chesterton's point of view, implicitly the glory of the creator of that sunset. Right. But it also communicates things about the, the awareness of the characters to their goings on is that they are kind of overcome by the sensation of the colors and stuff. And so um, them not, you know, paying initial attention to this messenger. Uh, I don't take it as much as a strike against the messenger as I take it as um, that. They're just kind of so involved in their kind of raucous slapstick farce behavior of interacting with each other and then kind of appreciating the color kind of, you know, <laughs> the sparkling things going on around them. It's almost like a cat with a laser pointer um, <laughs> uh, that then it kind of nicely sets up the them not noticing little things right away later, like, oh, did somebody steal those jewels? You didn't notice when they first disappeared. It took you several minutes before you realized your pockets were empty. Um, and it wasn't until later that Father Brown puts together that the person who did it is the person he's encountered many times before. But for some reason, I fake mustache, uh, you know, uh, Groucho Marx costume. Not sure. Didn't recognize fake Canadian accent, I guess. The boot really threw him off. Um, so, yeah. Um, it kind of sets up though that the characters are not paying quite as much attention to some of the details of the people around them because they're kind of so um, enjoying kind of each other's company as well as the, the world around them. Um, that again, I, the under underwritten principle here from Chesterton, I believe at all times really is just the glory as manifest from, uh, the divine. Yeah. I think also Brent, you, you pronounced the name of this character as, as Blount and it is spelled that way as in like count. But I think that this is probably meant to be pronounced as Mr. Blunt. And I think that this is one of Chesterton's jokes about Canadians, of which there are many, which is to say that Canadians, like Americans, are blunt compared to, uh, you know, the average English person in 1911, at least. I think uh, I think that's part of the joke here, that this is, uh, like Mr. Crook, uh, this is also meant to be a joke of a name for us. Uh, but yeah, I love this passage as well. And I, I almost picked it, but instead I picked the other description of a sunset that we get here, <laughs> which is on page 64. It's like we planned this together. And here, Chesterton writes, the winter afternoon was reddening towards evening, and already a ruby light was rolled over the bloomless beds, filling them, as it were, with the ghosts of the dead roses. On one side of the house stood the stable, on the other an alley or cloister of laurels led to the larger garden behind. And I like this descriptive passage for the same reason that uh, you picked out the one that I guess is about an hour later. It's not really a different sunset. It's just different phases of the same sunset <laughs> here on the same day. But yeah, just the beauty of it, the, the vividness with which this, uh, this is drawn, this picture is drawn for us, as well, as you say, a, a kind of spiritual sense here, right? The, I mean, the ghost of the dead roses, I think is absolutely beautiful, but uh, just as a, as a turn of phrase, but as an attitude about, you know, what is landscape, what is nature, right? To see in it uh, always the divinity of creation, the kind of special magic of creation, just the glory that we exist, that 
the world exists, that anything exists, and to be constantly reminded of that, which is something you know that you and I encountered very specifically in The Man Who Is Thursday, that does, as you say, seem to be all over these descriptions. And it's it's marvelous. I mean, the sunset, as described at two different times, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it does sound truly gorgeous. Um, he does a wonderful job evoking it um, in, uh, I think, a really great job. I it's too bad when I read these phrases from Chesterton that I don't, when I, when I don't get into the story as much, cause it's just like, Oh, the tools are all there. And it's just like, is the, is the finished product not working because of something that I did wrong or something that he did wrong? Right. This is a story in which the comedy was not comedic for us. The mystery was not mysterious, but the sunsets, the sunsets were killer. All right. I think we have said our piece about this story. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to hear more talk about Gilbert, uh, I hope you will join us on Patreon, where you can get an episode on The Blue Cross and another one on The Man Who Was Thursday. And of course, those episodes are just two among over a hundred other episodes on all sorts of things, but including the bonus series that Brent and I did on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Next time here on the main show, we will be back with an episode on... The first season of the Netflix television adaptation of Sandman, which covers preludes and nocturnes and Doll's House and a little bit of Dream Country. I have not watched this at all yet. Brent has, but I'm very, very excited for this. I hope you all are too. And until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>